episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, talking to the best, the brightest, and the up-and-comers in film and television. Uh, writers, directors, producers, costumers, cinematographers, uh, production designers, editors, sound editors, and mixers. You name it, we talk to them. Uh, and... I have a wonderful guest coming up today at the midpoint of the show that I'm so excited to have join us. Brian Barsuglia, writer-director Brian Barsuglia. You've heard me talk about him before. Uh, he had a film come out not too long ago called Impact Event, which I love. I keep asking for an extinction-level event in the universe. Well, Brian gave me one on film, and he has a new film that's coming out that I'm involved with. Um, I'm very excited about. It's called Social Distance. He's currently going into, just had picture lock. He's going into post-production on it. But he's been shooting this all through quarantine. Uh, maintaining social distance, but it's a very unique way that he has, has shot this film. So I'm very excited that Brian is going to be joining us at the, at the midpoint of the show to talk about this fantastic quote-unquote experiment in production and um, the thriller aspect of this great script that he came up with. So he'll be joining us. Before we get to Brian, though, you're going to get to hear my exclusive interview with cinematographer Sebastian Thaler talking about his latest film, 7500. Uh, I've mentioned 7500 the past couple weeks, stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt. It is an edge-of-your-seat nail-biter. For those of you that don't know, 7500 is the international code for hijacking. Uh, needless to say, this, this film, 7500, involves a hijacking on a flight that is scheduled from Berlin to Paris. Uh, hijacked by terrorists. Um, pilot is killed. The co-pilot, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Tobias, uh, is left not only to pilot the plane and figure out how to get this landed safely somewhere, but deal with the terrorists, two of whom are in the cockpit. Uh, and as most of you know, uh, after 9-11, there were great security measures that were put into place so that once cockpit doors are shut and locked, they're supposedly impenetrable and you do not open them under any circumstances. Well, some of these rules get broken here, uh, but it's an incredible experience watching this and listening to how this was shot. Uh, I think a lot of the filmmakers out there, and I know uh, a friend of mine, Chris Flynn, Chris has been waiting to hear uh, and anxious for more information on how Sebastian shot this, uh, you know, did the cinematography on 7500. Uh, which is written and directed by Patrick Volrath. So in just a minute, but before we get to Sebastian's interview, a lot of sorrow this morning, this weekend, in Hollywood, in Broadway, in music. Uh, first, we lost Nick Cordero over the weekend uh, after his long battle with, from COVID-19 and all the subsequent com uh, complications. This morning we get the word that the beloved Ennio Morricone has passed away. Um, he was 91 years old. Uh, most of you know him best for the Dollars Trilogy, Sergio Leone's Spaghetti Westerns that really put Clint Eastwood on the cinematic map. A fistful of Dollars for a few dollars more, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Uh, he also did Once Upon a Time in the West. And most recently, 
a whole new generation has fallen in love with his work after what he did with Quentin Tarantino for The Hateful Eight, for which he won an Oscar. Uh, Morricone also has a, in 2007, he was awarded a Lifetime Achievement Oscar, which was presented to him by none other than Clint Eastwood. Um, some of his other films uh, with impeccable scoring, In the Line of Fire, starring Clint Eastwood, Wolf with Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer, Love Affair, um, not a film you would think, unless you're familiar with Marconi's uh, scoring over in Italy, a lot of the, the, roman- the romance in a lot of the films. Uh, Love Affair is a remake of An Affair to Remember, uh, which was a remake of 1939's Affair to Remember with Irene Dunn and Charles Boyer. Most people with An Affair to Remember, they think of Cary Grant and Deborah Carr. Don't we all? Uh, but then there was another version made called Love Affair, starring Warren Beatty and Nett Benning, and in her final film role, Katherine Hepburn, and Marconi scored that film. It is a beautiful, beautiful score. And actually, beyond seeing Katherine Hepburn, the best element of the film. Um, sad, sad day, but... Marconi leaves. He had five Oscar nominations in addition to his Oscar win for Hateful Eight. He was nominated for Melania, Bugsy, The Untouchables, The Mission, Days of Heaven. Um, he leaves behind a body of work that few will surpass or equal. Um, he, it is a great loss to us all, but luckily we do have. And he was in the midst of pre-production on another film. So... We'll see what happens with that one. I don't know if any of the scoring was done uh, or where that was at in the production process in terms of Marconi's uh, composition. But that that we'll see in the future. But sad, sad, sad day hearing that very early this morning. And then as I'm driving into the studio, country music legend Charlie Daniels, The Devil Went Down to Georgia. He passed away from a hemorrhagic stroke at the age of 83. Um, There's our three within roughly a 24-hour period. The fates always say three. We lose the the famous in threes. That's enough threes. We just had a passel of threes last week. So enough. Stop. Um, Let us have a little bit of quiet in some area in life universe. Um, But our condolences go out to the families and friends of these three incredible men. So moving on, on a a happier note, today in 1984, Forrest Gump was released. And it is Sylvester Stallone's birthday. So those are two really good things today. But now, without any further ado... Let's move on to 7500. It is available digitally on VOD. Um, For those of you that have seen it, most of you, from what I've been reading on social media, you're in great agreement about the suspense aspect, the thriller aspect. There is so much nuance. There is so much technicality in bringing 7500 to life. And the bulk of it boils down to two people, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Sebastian Thaler. The film is actually shot in the cockpit of a plane. This is not a set. This is in the cockpit of a plane. And anybody that's ever been in a cockpit, they are not big. Let alone having several people in there, camera equipment, which necessitated, had to be considered in the choices that Sebastian made. We get into that in this interview. So, take a listen to Sebastian Thaler talking 7500. Hi, Sebastian. Hi, Debbie. Nice to hear you and meet you. Nice to hear you and meet you, too. I can't tell you how excited I am to talk to you about this film. Thanks, and it's nice to hear. Oh, my! this film, this comes down to your cinematography. If you didn't nail the camera work and the lighting, forget it. Forget it. Would never have worked. This is so glorious and I know that you've worked with Ed Lockman in the past 
I really hope Ed sees yeah, this because Ed's going to go crazy over this. Yeah, I will tell him to watch it. <laughs> oh, oh my God, Sebastian! I don't even know where to start here. This is such a such a stunner. As I told Shay, I was enthralled. I was riveted. And all of a sudden, at like the 45-minute mark, my hand hit my cursor. And I saw the time on the screen. And it's, oh, the film was 45 minutes in. I had no clue. It felt like it had only been going for 15 minutes at most. I just I hear that. But the visual and shooting this totally from inside the cockpit... For me, this harkens back to what Stephen Knight did in Locke with Tom Hardy, with just inside the car. And, yeah. And the whole film was shot in the car. And I know that, that Stephen used like 16 cameras or something, uh, positioning, because you could use little GoPros and things. You didn't use any of that here. No, I didn't. I didn't. How do you even begin to approach this film when you get a script and you see, oh, it's in the cockpit? Okay, we're going to build a set, we're going to move around, and then you find out, no, we really are going to be in a cockpit. Um, yeah, I mean, like, when I got the script, it was, uh, it was okay, wow, how shall we do that? Uh, like, uh, yeah, so the, the first approach was um, to visit the flight simulator and just to try out um, the space, to get the feeling for that. It's is that possible what we want that we don't want to leave uh, with the camera in the cockpit, even to shoot from outside of the cockpit to the inside? Mm -hmm. So we just really wanted to stick inside the space. And um, yeah, as you mentioned, like the, the, the tight space was like really the toughest thing uh, in all, uh, I mean, in all, in the lightning, in the acting, in the, in the preparation, everything. So um, yeah, we got um, we got to go like we were uh, committed to have a real flight in the night in a real airplane cockpit. Oh wow! Uh, and there we yeah, so there we catch the and uh, uh, catch the atmosphere and we observed very carefully the lighting situation, the atmosphere. The, um, in the cockpit, from the pilot, what they talk, what they do, how they behave, how it is, how it feels to be there. And with that experience, um, with that experience, we got um, we got to go to the studio and we tried to recreate that uh, that atmosphere there. Of course, we we uh, we didn't we couldn't do it like like a real documentary, but we tried to. Um, to keep the authenticity and the, the realm, but still make it uh, cinematic. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's extremely cinematic, Sebastian. Very much so. I love the lighting here. The lighting tells so much and, and impacts your camera angles. Because what I find striking is that we never really see Joe's full face. Joe is Tobias. We never really see his full face until deep into the film when he is now the hostage sitting on the floor in the cockpit there's always a shadowing be it a three-quarter profile a half profile one eye and and his glasses are shadowed and i found that striking because and he's and joe's performance he's so calm for the bulk of the film until you realize what's happening that it makes you wonder when the when the crisis begins, is he involved? Does he know? There's great ambiguity that comes from your lighting design and the angles that you use with the camera. I'm curious how you went about creating the lighting design to get those very specific shadows that you do create, the facial shadows in particular. Yeah, I mean like, uh I don't know if you know, but we, uh, like, um, Patrick and I, we developed, like, a special style of shooting. So we uh, we didn't know that when we were shooting, everything will be okay. We tried their, like, really long takes and 360 camera moves and so on. And uh, we did the same on 7500. 
we uh, made really like 50, 60 minute takes. Mm -hmm. um, so we combined several scenes together. For example, the, uh, the, the beginning scene when they are standing and the passengers are, are entering the plane, it was shot just on two days and we made maybe eight takes during this, uh, eight, uh, during this two days. Mm -hmm. So um, in preparation, we discussed a lot the emotions of the characters, the story, their possible positions, the possible, um, the possible um, improvisation that they could bring into the scene, of course. And then I took my gaffer, Jacob, and uh, we tried, uh, we, we got like some days of prep light in the cockpit, and we just played around and uh, and tried to um, implement the light into the cockpit so that we got uh, a chance to light the characters, of course, because mm -hmm. you see everything in the cockpit. And um, from uh, from the discussion that I had previously with Patrick, we tried to implement the emotions and the feelings of the characters. So um, it was like a very long, uh, process until we got into the cockpit and uh, started to light. Yeah, I mean, it, the lighting um, is, is Because the look is fabulous, and your focal length comes into play in here. So I'm curious what lenses you were using, especially in such close quarters. Um, mostly, mostly it was the 18 and a half and the 27 mil. So it will, we were quite wide, um, but it worked out quite well. The lens they were ultra prime, so uh, they are very beautifully and very lightweight. It was a problem to find really lightweight lenses for this project, which are not old, because all new lenses are very big and heavy and uh, and so on. And so I tried to get really nice small lenses, but uh, still to have uh, like good quality and not this separations or distortions for, for the face, especially when you use the wide lenses. Yeah, the, the look is, is fabulous with that. And you really get a good sense of the wides, and that carries through from the opening of the film with the quote-unquote surveillance cameras in the Berlin airport, which has yeah. a slight fish, wider, eh, slight fisheye where it, it falls off on the edges. And we get some of that in the cockpit as well and then you you tap in that the in-flight surveillance black and white camera at the cabin door and i'm guessing that was just a stationary camera that you set up for the two days you were filming just that yes. sequence uh, uh yeah exactly no it was like um uh the what is happening in the galley in the cabin was simultaneously played during we were filming in the uh in the cockpit so it was really behind the door Everything what you see on the monitor was live behind the door. Oh my yeah, God! Think there a cam, a security camera, and we had this live stream to the to the cockpit. And the Joe or Tobias, the character, was free to turn it off, turn it on, switch the perspectives, whatever he wanted. So there was, it was really a live setup. So everything what was happening 
outside was influencing him inside and vice versa. Wow. Wow. That is amazing that you were doing that simultaneously. You, yeah. you, you, it was like, it was, it was like uh, having two sets at the same time. Oh, my God. So were you using the same Ultra Primes for the galley area? No, for the galley area, we got a fisheye, uh, a zoom fisheye lamp to get the feeling of the security camera mm -hmm. to get a really wide angle and that everything focused. So uh, to have really like a real, to simulate a real security camera. The grainy black and white is perfect. Because of your constrained spacing spaces here, what light? It, what lights did you bring in? You said that you you changed out the practical lights for film lights. So I'm curious what lighting you actually were able to implement in here. Yeah, mostly we exchange like inside we had. I was I would I wanted to go to with tungsten, but there were no good alternative to that. So um, we tried the small BBS uh, ball lights. They were like LED lights, which are uh, quite small and magnetic, and you could put them everywhere. So we uh, used that, and you could dim them, of course, for the for the uh, for the lighting pole. And we had some um, also from BBS fluorescent uh, uh, light tubes in also tungsten. And for the bigger, uh, for the bigger lighting outside, and um, and for uh, simulating the let's say the airfield uh, light, practical light, we were using the uh, senior flex light system, bounce off and to pro to prolong to prolong the the way of the light, so the roll off of the light is uh, naturally. Mm. Now, I was going to ask about the exterior lighting. So you were actually lighting that exterior as well. That wasn't all done in post. No, that was that was lit by us. I mean, um, the first 20 minutes, I don't know if you know it, uh, the first 20 minutes when they are standing at the gate and the passengers are boarding, that's the uh, front projection. Okay. All what you see outside and all what you see in the, in the movie, it's like it happened in camera. Okay. Before we started the shoot, we were going to the Vienna airport and they allowed us to do it. Uh, we took like seven or nine cameras uh, and on the Russian arm to get the height of the uh, of the cockpit. Mm -hmm. And we were standing there for 20 or 25 minutes and filming just the, the outside of the airfield of the gate. And uh, in the same time, also, we did the taxiway and the start. We also could uh, get the footage there for the later uh, process. So for the, for, the gate, uh, for the gate position, we had this projection. And I was documenting where the street lights, where the airfield lights were standing, what kind of lights uh, um, they were, and that we reproduced inside of the studio. You know, I felt I was actually in the cockpit of a plane. I've been in the cockpit of planes before, and this was, I felt like I was in there. And it, so much of that came from the ambience of, out of the exterior. Just fabulously done, Sebastian. Thank you very much. Yeah, that was that was that was our biggest aim to make that as real as possible and to get this feeling um, that you are in real cockpit and that the outside environment is really there and not like stepping uh, into the post. But the, the merge between the two worlds, the real cockpit and the screen outside, is really uh, uh, merging together. Yeah. That was like the, the biggest task in that uh, first twenty minutes, and uh, yeah, that was our biggest concern. Also, of course. And boy, it works. Boy, does it work. You know, because of the limited space. Good to hear that. <laughs> because of the small space within the cockpit. So many of the, what camera did you end up using? Because most of, they take up room. It's room you don't have. So what camera did you end up going with? Yeah, it was a long, I mean, it was quite obvious for me for the beginning that we will uh, use the Alexa Mini. But I had to reduce all that uh, stuff, like I had the battery in my backpack and the video output and the radio video I had like in my backpack, everything. I had just the camera, a small monitor and the lens uh, in front of me. So it was all handheld 
uh, and might felt inside. The focus puller had to stay outside, of course, because there was no place. And um, yes, yeah, so I was alone there. I'm still I'm still surprised you fit in there because you you got somebody in the captain's seat, you got some a hijacker tied up on the floor. There's no that takes up the jump seat space. There's no real place for you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But um, like the first in, in the first two days, also in the press time, uh, I tried to get used to the small space and try to get my body ready to move. Uh, around the seats and uh, around the corners, around everything that is lying on the floor. So uh, that when you make the actual takes, I didn't have to. I didn't have to uh, look around where I can step, so that I was uh, had the image of the cockpit inside me already, or remembered it. So mm -hmm. I, I knew where I can move. And um, it was at the beginning. It was, of course. Um, finding between me and the characters or uh, to try to build up a relationship so that we could later then um, have a dance inside of the cockpit mm -hmm. because um, the most important thing for me was not to disturb the characters so that they could have the feeling that they can move freely and are not blocked by me because I didn't want to disturb their... I wanted to give them freedom uh, to develop the character, and uh, I was trying to make myself as invisible as possible. Well, it, it worked, and this is a testament to your eye and your skill as a cinematographer, because we keep getting, with the movement and the camera movement that you were able to bring in, we keep getting that shift of power within the cockpit. You know, we've got Tobias in charge, once, once the one hijacker is subdued and he gets him tied up, I am in charge, we have control of the plane. But then once he finally opens the door to let the dot in, then we get the power struggle happening within the cockpit. And there are moments where oh, you've got, you're dutching so that, or actually maybe not intentionally dutching, just moving the camera because it's the only place you could go, um, so that Tobias is, he's not on a level playing field. He's higher in the frame, his face. So it's a power move. Yeah. And you go back and forth with Vidat. Once Vidat starts panicking after Kinan uh, goes totally off the rails of, I'm going to crash the plane. That's all we're going to do. I'm going to crash the plane. Vidat freaks out. And then you really get a mix of who's in charge. And it's not until that third act maybe 10 minutes before the end of the film, that we ever see a level playing field when Tobias and Vidat are sitting on the cabin floor, on the cockpit floor. That's really the only, and that's also the first time that we ever see a full frontal of Tobias. And I, that is so striking, Sebastian, so striking. This is one of those films where the cinematography is the dialogue of the film. It just eloquently. Uh, thank you very much. Eloquently done. Were the were the camera moves? Yeah, obviously you're not storyboarding and shot listing this. Did you have any idea where you would be going with the camera or were you following basically what you know, what Joe was doing as an actor? Were you taking a lead from any one person, any one performer? Yeah, I mean, like, we were, yeah, we were, we were, um, like, our approach was always the first take. It was, um, I mean, the, the, there was a script, there were uh, written dialogue and so on, but Patrick wanted to have them improvise so they can change the lines, they could, they could ask or speak what they want in mm -hmm. general. So the first take was all of us, like, Let's try, there were no rehearsals, let's try, let's improvise, let's see uh, how we get into these emotions, how we get on the flow, and let's, let's try it. And uh, with the first takes, we always um, were free to go, I was free to go, Patrick was connected to me, of course, he was whispering me sometimes some wishes, what you wanted, like, let's give me a close-up of that now, or, or let's hand over to Vedad, or so on. But in general, the first take was like... Um, uh, let's do it. Let's all have all the freedom they what they want, and uh, let's try one thing, one take. And after the take, we were discussing 
what emotions we got, is it going in the right direction, did we miss something, uh, do we want to repeat something, do we want a different uh, try or different lens, and um, we were shooting chronologically, so we had always in mind where the characters are, what, what, next, what next visual approach we can add to the story, so we can push the story forward, or underline some emotions of Joe or Vedat. Well, it is brilliantly done. I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you very much. Yeah, of course, it was it was important uh, to like for me it was quite very important to see the actors, to see the uh, acting, and to support with the the frame and the visual their emotions. So it was kind of uh, um, uh, uh, um, also acting with them and. Like I said before, like a dance with them to know, will he go there, will he be there, what he will do next, like to predict maybe some movement or not, because uh, I was in that, in that moment, I was like the first viewer, and also at the same time, somehow the first editor who, was, who has to deliver footage to the editing room. I was trying to um, pan to different situations where I thought it could be good now to change the perspective. Mm. It was uh, yeah, on, quite on the fly. This has been a joy, Sebastian, and I sincerely hope I get to talk to you again in the future. And that was our exclusive interview with cinematographer Sebastian Thaler. A big hi to my friend Chris Flynn, who was able to, to watch on the Facebook live stream. So I know he had had lots of questions about how the cinematography was done. So I hope that he got a lot of his answers listening to Sebastian's interview. Well, 7,500, as I said, you can't go wrong with it. VOD and digital, um, see it. You've all seen Hamilton now. Many of you have seen The Outpost. Many more should see The Outpost. Now you can start seeing some other little gems. And right now we're going to switch gears and welcome. We're going to welcome the fabulous... The fabulous man who at least gives me an ELE when I want it. Brian Barsuglia is with us. Hello, Brian. Hello, Debbie. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you. I think I've been talking about Impact Event for three months now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> you know, and for anybody that's watching on the Facebook stream, Pam, can, does this show up on, on your video? Impact event. Impact event. Get it. Buy it. You can buy it. It's digital. What? DVD and Blu-ray. And it's wonderful. But now you've got another wonderful film that you're working on. Social Distance. This is innovative. It's quote-unquote experimental. Talk to me about what social distance is? Well, social distance is what it implies. It's people uh, working at a distance. They're a PR team for a cruise line that's being blamed for bringing COVID into save their company. And it's uh, given the appearance of a video conference. And it's a thriller as people kind of fight with the demons of isolation. Now, what I love, I love the whole concept, but something that I love even more is already everybody is so used to seeing all of these, you know, quote unquote entertainment pieces that are put together, reunion pieces of just one big Zoom conference screen. That's not what you're doing with social distance. No, it has a lot of video conferencing built in, so it gives us that familiar video conferencing appearance. But it also has web stream, uh, live streams on web pages, different social media involved. And we didn't shoot it as a video conference. We shot each piece individually and put it all together in post-production. Now, so that before anybody has a heart attack and panics, said, oh my God, they weren't social distancing while they were shooting social distance. Explain, explain <laughs> how you did, because this, I think, is just fabulous. Of course, as I saw and as I suspected, 
uh, before I saw the the behind the scenes that you just released yesterday with Vernon. Um, you had a very unique process um, so that you weren't just shooting a computer screen of everybody Zoom conferencing. Talk to me and explain for everybody listening your process here because I just think it's fabulous. Well, thank you. We we had to figure out a way to do this, and the easiest way was through video conferencing. So I directed through video conferencing. The actors got the other lines this way, but they had their own setups. They had cameras, lighting, sound. Um, in many cases, it was mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, husbands, wives, friends who became makeup and wardrobe and camera operators. We turned all of our actors into filmmakers and uh, it was a really at first it was a little challenging but we found uh, we found a pretty good groove for directing and acting via video conference now I'm curious because you know how many people have cameras and things sitting in their house that they can do this so what was that process like how did they get equipment because obviously no stores were open they couldn't go rent any um, or even at that point in time while you were shooting, um, you know, Best Buy shut down, even Target shut down for a while. So, you know, how did, how did you overcome this hurdle? Amazon did not shut down. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, yes, a few people we had to send some equipment to, the microphones or cameras, and we had to make sure that they had uh, nice quality equipment for recording. And, of course, with the new phones, the new iPhones and Androids, they record beautiful video, so a lot of this was actually done on mobile devices as well. Mm -hmm. Now, what was the learning curve like in trying to explain to a lot of your actors? Because this is a, this is a relatively big cast, too, Brian. Um, you know, this is not just one or two people. You're wrangling a big cast here. So what was this learning curve like to get people and tutor them in lighting and angles and things like that? Well, a few of the people have filmmaker uh, roommates or friends that were able to help them out. With the rest of the cast, we just sort of walked through it all. They would send me screenshots and images of what they're actually recording with because what I was seeing through the video conference wasn't what was being recorded. Right. And uh, we just sort of played around until we got it. And they became, like I said, the, the cast, the actors, they became filmmakers. They became, they became lighting experts. They became sound engineers. They did it all on their end. And we, we did have a few things that we had to redo and shoot over now and then. We had our share of technical difficulties, but overall it went really smooth. So now, once you have all these pieces from your multiplicity of actors, then everything was sent to you, downloaded and sent to you. So now, how many different pieces have you been working on? Because you just you just did Picture Lock. Um, so I'm curious about <laughs> how many pieces you had sent to you, and then the editing process, working with your editor, Jennifer Noonan, um, you know, to get it to where it is right now. The goal for this is to look very simple, but it's very complex. Mm -hmm. Each video is, we have eight or nine people on camera. It ends up being 16, 17, 18 layers. It's extremely intensive on the computer system. And while it looks very simple as a finished product, it's extremely effects heavy. Mm-hmm. So how did you how much how many hours of footage did you have that you and Jennifer had to go through to cull it down into an edited film? Oh gosh, uh, I don't even I don't even know. It was it was pretty immense. In in some degree it's less than a traditional film because this was just four or five takes or sometimes more mm -hmm. just from a shot to look like a, a video camera from a video conference. Mm -hmm. So we weren't doing traditional coverage. We weren't getting over-the-shoulder shots, close-ups, establishing shots. We're primarily getting one shot. So instead of doing five or six uh, takes of each shot, we're doing five or six or maybe ten takes sometimes of that single angle. So it's actually a little less intensive in that regard. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and how long and this is you know this is almost immediate here brian so i'm i'm curious how quickly you and jennifer did the editing turnaround so that you're already in picture block uh, this is amazing we were editing from the start so as soon as we shot that first scene we were already editing um in some of these scenes that have multiple characters we would layer it so it was ready to go as soon as the next character the next actor was shot we could plug that into place and have it ready to go. There were placeholders in there. Yeah. Uh, during during the filmmaking process, I would start with one actor and I would read the opposite lines. So I would know that actor's timing. Then when I would read with the next actor, I would know the timing of the previous actors. So the timing ended up being pretty good for the most part. Mm-hmm. Now, how and that's a luxury that a director normally doesn't have because... It, are you able because you're also you're reading opposite the actor? Um, can you actually kind of set the cadence yourself by doing that, or do you let the actor take the lead in that regard, and then you just feed a line? It's a little bit of both. Uh, there's certain scenes where I kind of know the pacing I set a cadence, but ultimately. This is really a character-driven thriller, so I really wanted the actors to create the pacing. Mm -hmm. And you're so good at character-driven, you know, with impact event. Um, You know, that, it's very, granted, it's an event, but it's driven, it's very character-driven with lots of fun things that are happening. Um, What is the appeal for you about character-driven stories? I like to see actors do their thing. I like to give actors a chance to explore their abilities, explore themselves, and explore characters. Uh, even even with this movie, I started with a skeleton outline. Then I worked with the actors individually to find out what resources they had at home that we could build into the script. Mm-hmm. I wrote the first act. It's essentially a five-act tragedy. <laughs> And then I wanted to see where the character, where the actors took their character. And then once we finished an act, I wrote the next act, then the next, then the next. Now, you know, how did you go about casting? I'm thrilled. You, you already know my love for Vernon Wells. Vernon knows my love for <laughs> Vernon. Um, you know, for people that may not recognize Vernon's name immediately, uh, he's been at Mad Max 2, one of his most famous roles. He was in Commando, Weird Science. And for you, he was an impact event. He also recently has been in City of Gold. And then a fabulous, fabulous, um, quote-unquote, show that I hope one day will, be, will get to be completed, Rusty Revolver. But Vernon is always, Vernon is Vernon. So you have Vernon here. <laughs> then you also bring in, who I think is just so much fun, Prince Mario Max Schomburg Lippa. Um, and I know you brought, you, you undoubtedly got Mario in there because of Margaret O'Brien and Randall Malone. True? Yes, I actually met uh, Prince Mario Max at an event three or four years ago, and he and I stayed in touch, and I said I'd love to work with him, and this was the opportunity. I reached out, and he was really excited about it, and he did a, he did a great job. I was thrilled to have him. And Vernon, I've had the opportunity of working with before. Um, when in Jekyll and Hyde, he had a pretty large part in Impact Event. Our schedules didn't quite line up, so it was a bit smaller. And then this was an opportunity to give him a meatier and beefier key role. And he just he just runs with any role that he gets, and he always elevates any production that he's in. I think. Um, and you keep and you know you've worked with him several times now, so obviously you're of the same the same opinion about him. Yeah, I really enjoy working with him. He's a really good actor. He takes it serious, and he's a joy to work with. I love to see where he takes the characters every time. Well, I can't wait to see what Prince Mario Max did because he is just so much fun. Um, so I'm really looking forward to see his to seeing his role in this and seeing footage of him uh, once this... Yeah, his, uh, his role actually created one of the toughest editing decisions we had because he speaks multiple languages. So we had him do the scene in multiple languages before uh, deciding how we were going to cut it. Oh, my God. 
Wow. Wow. Now, how did you go about casting the rest of the film? Obviously, nobody was working, so nobody could really say to you, oh, I'm busy and I don't have time. Uh, so how did you put your feelers out for your cast? The first, the, the main six characters, Jed Rowland, Tasha Tacosa, Christine and Sean McGee, Rachel Riley and Casey Brown, I've all worked with to some degree before. So I approached each of them, talked about resources, possible characters, and then built their characters based on who they are, what they bring to it, and the resources they had. And then essentially I did that with all of the actors. Every actor I approached when I had a character in mind, I first talked to the actor, got a sense of their reading if I hadn't worked with them before, and then I wrote the part specifically for each actor. Wow. Uh, now, you know, uh, you're mentioning, you know, what actors, what actors had in their houses that you could work into the script. Did you go beyond what people normally would just have lying around the house, lying around their office, lying around their bedroom? Or did, did people have some unique things that you could work into this thriller? Oh, well, a little bit of both. People had a lot of unique things in their house from action figure collections to uh, animals that we worked into it. And then, of course, we had a few things sent to actors to uh, make sure the screenplay, make sure the story had what it needed to drive the story forward. Wow. So not only do you write custom write parts for certain actors, you're custom writing for what's in their house. <laughs> yeah, and that was one of the things I really wanted to make sure we did. We really wanted to pull the different resources people had to to make it feel as authentic as possible. No, I I just think that's that's fantastic, and it is. It is su this is such a unique filmmaking process, Brian. Uh, and with all the directors, all the indie directors that I talk to, nobody is doing anything like this. Um, so this could be a new trendsetter here uh, that you're doing, uh, especially if, if, you know, if things don't start opening up so people can film, film, film. Um, you know, some, somebody else that you're bringing back on board with you is your composer, Robert Aquato. Um, now, has he started with the music yet? Because you're just going into sound. Um, in your post not not yet. We just got we just got picture locked, so we'll start that process. And I'm excited to see where the soundtrack, the score, ends up because uh, music's going to be crucial to this. Mm -hmm. Now, how long do you think you'll be working on the sound design, and who do you have doing your sound design? I am doing most of the sound design. <laughs> of course, you are. <laughs> 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 you know, people, people, you have no idea just how multifaceted and talented Brian is. Writer, director, <laughs> cinematographer. Uh, he can operate a camera himself. Um, we're about to find out just how adept he is at using multiple computers at one time with multiple images uh, and sound. Uh, you know, and I imagine that one of the most difficult things with, with the sound for this film, Brian, it may be continuity of sound within the ambience within each specific location. Do you anticipate that being a differential or something that you're going to have to navigate around? Well, that's something I've been watching closely the entire process. Fortunately, there's a lot of, not a lot, there's some software, specialized software out there now that helps match the audience of a room, helps match different microphones to other microphones, so it helps ease the process, so it's not hours and hours of equalization for one, uh, one scene. Um, but it's also the type of thing where I think an audience being used to the Zoom conferencing doesn't mind a little variation and probably, in fact, expects it a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, please tell me we're not going to have hollow echoes, though. No. <laughs> Thank God. Thank God. That's one thing that has annoyed me more than anything with all of the Zoom things that are being put out there over the past few months is the echoing and the hollowness and the reverb in, that is coming through in everybody's house. Um, and it's like, oh, my God, 
save me. Save my auditory experience now. So you've, you've made me very happy hearing that, Brian. <laughs> very. <laughs> well, that's one of the things we paid close attention to in the beginning is to make sure that regardless of what device they were recording with, that we could get quality sound out of everyone. Now, what were you, were you using additional uh, recording devices? Um, you know, I, for everything, even if I'm shooting something, I always do a backup audio in an H4N. Um, so I'm curious if you had other recording devices that you were using in addition to whether somebody was using a phone or whatever the case may be. Yes, no, sometimes where, where <laughs> they were available, we absolutely had them. <laughs> I love this. Yes, no, sometimes. <laughs> Fabulous. So how long do you think it'll be? <laughs> what are your plans for... Obviously, you're going to be working on sound for a while. Robert's going to have to be working on the score. Um, I would love to see this done in about two weeks and distributor ready. Now, that's my next big thing on this. And as a co-producer, I'm very interested in this fact. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What, any ideas for distribution with this one? Oh, I have ideas. We'll see if the distributors agree with me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, automatically, I'm thinking this is something perfect for uncorked. Um, Something like this, I think, is something Gravitas would even look at. Um, So I'm really curious to see what kind of bites distributors, um, you know, are going to make on this one. Because people need, they're, they're looking for more content. And I know distributors, the pipelines are drying up, as you and I have talked about before. Yeah, absolutely. And here's a movie that's uh, just about ready to go for them as the rest of Hollywood is looking for ways to get started up. We're wrapping up with a feature film. So hopefully these distributors will uh, be interested in it. And my goal is to present possible product we can get to them and hopefully get a lot of interest in it now any chance that because hollywood still hasn't started up um uh, several european countries i know iceland is open and ready to film and i believe they are filming there uh bulgaria open and ready nubuyana is there with full studio capabilities but i don't know if anybody is shooting there because of a still anticipated delay in things gearing up and because of all the protocols that are going to have to come into play. Do you see yourself embarking on another film in this fashion, if need be? You never know. There's always room for a sequel. What? Sequel? Sequel? One of my favorite (laughs) words. Sequel? (laughs) even my engineer. It's, the, uh, it's, it's a whole. It's a whole new universe. A social distancing universe. Oh my God! Do you find? Is this something that you think your the actors are embracing? Doing a film like this way. Oh, absolutely. I, we we started this really as a, a just a bunch of creative minds looking for something to do to be productive and keep busy, and people really took ownership of it. What the actors brought to it was amazing. And that behind the scenes that I released, I have a lot more footage of that that I want to put something together later that's a little longer that shows people even more of the process because they were all so excited and worked so hard and put so much effort into this. Well, see, and that's something I really want to see. I want to see more of the process with these actors that we're doing now, learning how to be cinematographers, learning how to set up lights, learning how to position cameras. And, of course, all the mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers who are, who are doing hair and makeup and wardrobe. Uh, this is, I mean, I don't even want to see the credits on this film when it's done, Brian. I don't know how I can. I'm going to try my best, but I don't know how I can get the credits complete because I think there were so many people that helped out that I'm probably never going to hear about. But yeah, I'm going to try to give everybody credit who I can. Well, I mean, I just think it's such a fabulous undertaking. I think it's so great that everybody had the support of their of their family who was quarantined with them. Um, 
and it, sa- it says a lot about the project. It says a lot about the talent that you have involved in the film, that their families were willing to get behind them in this project as well. And that speaks to you as a director. Well, thank you. I was I was glad to have everyone involved and excited that they wanted to be involved and uh, put this much dedication into the project. So, and right now, everybody can stay abreast of what's happening. Uh, you've got the website, socialdistancemovie.com. You've got the Facebook page, Social Distance. Um, any Instagram yet? It's uh, all through the, com- the company. It's all at Koa Aloha Media. Okay. All right, because I know that's where Twitter is. It's through Koa Aloha Media. But, yeah, for Facebook, for Facebook in the movie, and you'll be putting, and you've got a trailer out there, uh, and the banner looks fabulous. I have to tell you, the banner looks fabulous. Thank you. I was really excited to see that. So. I won't tell you, I won't tell you who the graphic designer was. Oh, should I guess? (laughs) We'll just add that to your list of titles as well. Oh my God, Brian! Is I think it's easier to ask: Is there anything that you don't do or can't do act. on a film? Oh, acting! Acting is not. You can't <laughs> act. All right. Well, yeah, but you can... a, a few times here and there out of necessity. Oh my God! Well, I'm just and I am still so tickled watching you know the behind the scenes yesterday and watching the way you cut it. With Vernon, take one, take four, take five, take one A, take five A. It's very, it, it just, it makes me laugh. Um, which leads me to believe that shooting this entire project, when you get down to it, hard work, but a lot of fun. Yes, it really was. It was so different than anything else I've been involved in. And it was a, just a fun, inventive, new way to keep busy, to be creative, and to make a movie. So at this stage, before the film is even done, what have you learned as a director that you weren't aware of before about yourself as a director? Um, I think one of the things that I always try to continue to learn and grow with is giving my actors room to bring what they have to the character, to really explore the character themselves. And I think this we we didn't have the same time constrictions that we might on a normal set. Mm-hmm. So it was really nice to give them the opportunity to really explore the characters. Uh, and, I, and I have no, working on the smaller budgets like I do, a lot of times time is a major issue in what we're doing. And the actors had, if they wanted to do five extra takes after I had what I needed, we did five extra takes. Nice. Very nice. Well... I am so glad that you could come on the show today and talk about social distance. I'm very excited to see this finished. Um, When you first mentioned it to me a few months ago, when we talked about Impact Event, I was excited then, as you know. Uh, And I'm even more (laughs) excited now after seeing the progress that you've made and what you've put out. So I can't wait to see the final product here, Brian. And uh, you know anything you need. Any help you need, distribution or otherwise, you know, just call me, you know. Um, Thank you so much. I appreciate your involvement and the opportunity to be on your show and all the support you and your listeners have given us. And we're just going to keep moving along as quick as we can. And then obviously you'll come back on the show when the film is done and it's out there for people to see. I can't wait. It's always so much fun. (laughs) Brian, thank you, thank you, thank you. And everybody, to follow the antics of Brian Barsuglia and Social Distance, you can follow along for the rest of this process on socialdistance.movie.com or on the Social Distance Facebook page. Brian, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I will talk to you again soon. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Brian Barsuglia, writer, director, cinematographer, sound, graphics for Social Distance. 
And yes, you can follow along for the remaining progress uh, as this film nears its ultimate final completion. Uh, I can't wait to see the finished result. The footage I've seen already um, through trailer and through the behind the scenes is is great. Uh, and anything with Vernon, I'll see. And Prince Mario Max, I had the best time with him at TCM Film Festival uh, a few years ago with Margaret O'Brien uh, and Randall Malone. And that was uh, one of the best conversations I had for several hours with all three of them, particularly Margaret, who had to talk about how much she loves movie theater hot dogs. Um, that is something I will remember for the rest of my life. Uh, but so, yeah, Brian will be back on the show. Once the film gets done, we get distribution. That is all the time we have today. But quickly, before we go, I just want to say there are quite a few great films out there that have just opened within the past few days or opening this week. Can't recommend them highly enough. Force of Nature. Michael Polish, director, stars Mel Gibson, Emil Hirsch, Kate Bosworth, Jason Crothers' cinematography, um, wonderful editing, and incredible production design uh, set in Puerto Rico uh, during, a, during a Cat 5 hurricane. And it's a thriller, it's a crime thriller, uh, and it is wonderful. Four kids in it, for the whole family, Andy Damony, written by Simon Lewis, based on Jacqueline Wilson's book, which is based on the E. Nesbitt classic, Five Children in It. I read Five Children in It when I was in third or fourth grade. Uh, so to see these different incarnations and now have four kids in It, uh, it's charming, absolutely charming. Russell Brand, Michael Good, Paula Patton. But the kids in the film are the scene stealers. And if you ever wanted to see Michael Caine animated, well, Michael Caine is the voice of the Simiad, who is, quote-unquote, it in the film and in the books. And the whole design of the Simiad, which, taking a page from The Mandalorian, animatronic, stuffed, um, so that when the, everybody is interacting with it, it's real interaction. And the animatronic actually had Michael Caine's voice with the dialogue coming out of it. Um, but the simiette actually resembles Michael Caine in many respects. It is a charming movie for the whole family. Little kids can see this. And Russell Brand is, is over the top. Um, Street Survivors. Interesting film from Jared Cohen. It is the story of the final days and the final day of the Leonard Skinner cra uh, airplane crash. And this is told through the POV of a former drummer for Leonard Skinner, Artemis Pyle. Uh, it's an interesting film. It is very 70s period perfect. Homewrecker comes out this week. Zach Gain, writer-director Precious Chong is amazing. Yes, daughter of Tommy Chong, and Alex Esso. Most of you will, may remember her best so far for her performance in Dr. Sleep as Wendy Torrance. She took over the Shelley Duvall role uh, for the sequel to The Shining. It is, it gets dark, but it, and it gets a little twisted, but it is funny as can be. And if you missed it in the theaters when it first came out, in today's times, a great, great movie to see. It's on VOD. It's on digital. Burden. Writer-director Andrew Heckler stars Garrett Hedlund, Forrest Whitaker, Tom Wilkinson. Um, it's a story of a KKK museum that's opening in South Carolina. And Forrest Whitaker's character of Reverend Kennedy tries to keep the peace in the community. And he tries to help Mike Burden, Garrett Hedlund's character, walk away from being a member of the KKK and to start a new life. Um, it's a very powerful movie. Incredible performances. Tom Wilkinson is award-worthy uh, in a supporting role. So just a few films. And then Driven, of course. Driven is hilarious. It's funny. 
takes place primarily in a car. A, a An Uber slash Lyft driver picks somebody up and they go from scene to scene as they try to prevent some supernatural cataclysmic event from happening. Um, it's a lot of, and of course, to five bloods. If you haven't seen it, see it. Delroy Lindo, Oscar bound. He, so far this year, he and Caleb Landry Jones uh, in the outpost are my two surefire Oscar worthy picks for the year. If you haven't seen it, see the outpost. If you've seen it once, see it again. It is the best picture of the year. And of course, Hamilton. And I think by this point, everybody may have seen it um, based on social media. But if not, timely, topical, may get an education too. So, without any further ado, that is all the time we have. We'll be back next week with Michael Arthur talking about iPostafari. Yes, a religion based on pasta. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 